0: episode of the podcast on from the Trenches, Musicians You Should Know. My name is Nick Drozdoff, aka Studio Man, and I'll be your host. Before we get to today's interview with trumpeter, composer, arranger, and entertainer, Josh German, I want to cover some ideas about the show and my studio band project, the Variable D Postulate Ensemble. First, let me review what this podcast is all about. As mentioned previously, there are many very famous and successful musicians from the East and west coasts. But out there in the professional trenches of the freelance music world, so to speak, there are many brilliant musicians who, for one reason or another, do not enjoy the same level of well-deserved recognition. This podcast is my effort to remedy that situation. My guests are excellent, hard-working professionals whose accomplishments need to be recognized. Now as to my band, the Vrabel D Postulate Ensemble, let me say this. As a leader slash soloist, I'll be making my primary performing environment the recording studio. This will be either my basement studio, most of you have seen that if you watch my videos, my northern studio up in Door County, or one of several studios I'll be working with in the Chicago area. My band concerts will be mini performances of about five tunes each and the musicians will be hired to play and lay down their parts uh, one section at a time uh, in a recording studio with a full record of the event taken in video. The musicians in the band are from a very diverse musical community and I want my bands to represent that diversity in age, gender, race, etc. This is part of the variations on the variable D. The other part of the Variable D postulate revolves around the fact that as a small-time rather obscure band leader in the Chicago area, I realize that I cannot expect a total freelance commitment from the brilliant sidemen who I hire to stick with me on every gig. There are bound to be some double bookings. There will be many occasions when I have to cover a chair from the vast talent pool that is from this diverse area. So personnel will also be variable. To stay abreast of all this, keep an eye on the Variable deposit Ensemble links on my webpage. Since my solo life will primarily be in the studio and only minimally live in clubs, I felt a self-administered cognomen of studio man was uniquely appropriate. So there you have it. The secondary function of this show is to inspire newer musicians with some wisdom to hopefully develop their own careers and lives with a better sense of balance during these culturally stressed times. The starving artist model is not the only way to go. Okay, before we get started, I need to take care of some business. As always, as a professional trumpeter, I am an endorsing artist. I play wedge mouthpieces designed and manufactured by Dave Harrison of British Columbia. I also play Gets and Trumpets, manufactured in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and I couldn't be happier with that combination. Next, I am operating an independent online music business. To find out more, just visit my website, http://www.nickdrazdoff.com. That's www.nick.com. D-R-O-Z-D-O-F-F dot com. Finally, I'm looking for sponsors. Initially, I have opened a merch page to sell products to raise funds primarily for the variable D postulate ensemble, an independent performance group of my own creation. Just visit the website to learn more. Sponsorship also supports my work with this podcast. None of the funds from sponsorship support goes into my pocket. The sponsorship funds go directly into supporting online video performances of the VDPE. I pay the musicians, the studios, the engineers, and the cameramen, and that is currently all coming out of my pocket. My pension can only go so far, so I'm reaching out by way of self managed crowdfunding uh, to support this endeavor. So if you want to support art music in cyberspace, please consider supporting our my effort. With that in mind, I need to give a shout-out to our very first supporter of these projects. Now, I draw a distinction between a sponsor and a supporter. A sponsor simply contributes funds to a project. and Sponsors are committed to helping me make the world a little more beautiful place and will be given promotional credit, much like a commercial on this show and or on my webpage, based on the size of their contributions. A supporter has purchased some Merchandise a specific product or item, that, uh, and the proceeds from that purchase will go directly into a project. In an effort to raise money for our first project, I put many of my horns, mouthpieces, and other items from my library and collections up for sale in an effort to convert these items into monies I can use to pay my musicians, etc. My first substantial sale just went down. Lewis Lou Toms, purchased my MF Firebird combined slide valve trumpet. Yes, this was my horn, and yes, this is Tandemouth, but still using my money to do this, but Louis contributed significantly to helping convert this horn back into the funds needed to get our first big project underway. Louis is a freelance trumpeter slash trombone player from Northern Illinois and is a trumpeter from an excellent R&B band called Hip Pocket. So many thanks to Lou for his support. And for that support, please visit the website, www.hippocket.com. That's www.hippocket.com. Okay, that's it for today's promo. Now on to the show. Today's guest is Chicago area trumpeter, composer, arranger, Joshua Jern. I've known Josh for quite a few years. He's graduated from Oak Forest High School and received a B.A. in music from Milliken University in Decatur, Illinois. He received his music master's in jazz studies from Chicago College of Performing Arts at, well, my old alma mater, Roosevelt University. Joshua Dern has performed with numerous acts and ensembles, including the Buddy Rich Big Band. Florence Henderson, Patty Page, the Rob Parton Big Band, the Shout Section Big Band, the John Burnett Orchestra, the Michael Larrick Orchestra, and Alan Gresick Swing Shift Orchestra, and the great post-modern nightmare big band, to name only a few. He has played for two Chicago mayors, Rahm Emanuel and Richard M. Daley, current mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and former Secretary of State, General Colin Powell. Josh has played for professional productions of Jesus Christ Superstar, Maine, The Blues Brothers Reunion, produced by Dan Aykroyd in the Belushi Estate, Monty Python Spamalot, and Baby in Chicago, as well as a national tour of A Christmas Story, the musical. No stranger to the recording studio setting, Joshua has also recorded in numerous studios throughout the Chicagoland area and for many different musical projects. In fact, I recently finished off a project with the Shout Section Big Band, for which Josh was one of the go-to arrangers for the sessions. While maintaining a rigorous performance schedule, Joshua Jern also finds time to focus on music education. As a clinician and adjudicator in the Chicago area, he has the opportunity to present practical knowledge of pro-level performance skills and accessible ways to help students along their path of ultimately experiencing the enjoyment of creating music. Jern also maintains a small private studio of select students who are dedicated to learning how to better play the trumpet. Josh also travels frequently to many parts of the world to entertain audiences on some of the most luxurious cruise ships and ocean liners in the world. This is something that Josh wants to discuss as part of his advice for newer professional musicians during our live interview. So we'll be checking back on that in a few minutes. On a more personal level, I got to know Josh via the Shout Section Big Band, led by Brett Dean. I also got to know him while I was the lead trumpeter and section manager for the Starfall Big Band, led by Paul Martin and Bobby Ojeda. On that band, I had several occasions to bring Josh on board as a highly qualified sub uh, on the band. I have found Josh to be both a brilliant musician and a wonderful person to work with before we get to the live interview let's hear some of josh's work both as a trumpeter and a ranger Now on to the interview Okay, I want to welcome Josh Jern To our little podcast today Uh, Josh, it's really a pleasure to have you here man. Thanks for having me here Just a a gas Okay Uh, Sung Heroes um, uh, Do Us From The Trenches Information for musicians Kind of learning about the biz Uh, So the line of questioning Is a little like what uh, I'm going to be doing With all of our guests here Uh, When did you decide to make music your life's work? How did you know? that was something you wanted to do?
1: Um, you know, I, I guess it, it wasn't from such a young age that I realized that. It. it probably wasn't until I was in my early 20s. Uh, when I went off to college, my initial thoughts were I was going to go into forestry really uh yeah yeah that was kind of what I wanted to do because I was I was 17 years old when I graduated high school and um, you know nobody knows what they want to do when they're that <laughs> age
0: you're right right
1: um, but I you know I enjoyed camping and you know all that sort of stuff uh, that the outdoor activities that, yeah. uh, uh, that are available around here uh, in, in Illinois and in the neighboring states and I sort of you know when I thought of what it, how it is I wanted to spend my days I sort of had this vision of you know, driving a Jeep through the woods, sipping on a cuffed coffee and watching the sunrise. And I figured going into forestry would be a way to make that happen.
0: Yeah, that do it.
1: Um, so I applied uh, to, I think it was Southern Illinois University. Okay. And I got into the forestry program, and then they sent me the list of courses I would need to take, which included a bunch of math and science <laughs> courses. <laughs> oh, no. And Deal the re- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reality of, of uh, a degree in forestry hit me immediately. <laughs> And then I thought, oh, you know, I also like to play the trumpet, <laughs> so maybe I'll go into that. So that was how I decided to major in, uh, initially was music education. Okay. Um, uh, after a couple of years, I switched to performance, though, in hmm. undergraduate school. Um, yeah, and then I ultimately went on to grad graduate school. Uh, and it was around that time when I, I started playing gigs and, um, you know, sort of experienced how how fun it could be to actually perform. Yeah. Uh, that was around the time I decided that, okay, I, I think I am actually going to stick with this. Because yeah. this is like, you don't, you don't get a kick like that doing anything else. Like being on a stage and performing for people and having them literally, like, like when you go to work, they're cheering you <laughs> for, yeah. for doing your job. You don't fun. get that anywhere else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was really impressed when I was going through uh, music files online with the uh, uh, the stuff you were doing with uh, like the, all the Harry James things and fronting shows and, and things of that nature. Uh, how how does it feel to, to do that? Do you find it more of a challenge to be a front man as well? You know, you're not just a trumpet player; you're an entertainer. So. Um, uh, how do you put those two things together? Is that something that you have to think about or you just do it?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different set of concerns, uh, being an entertainer, you know, front man, however yeah. you want to put it, versus being a side man. Yeah. Uh, when you're a side man, as we you know, sort of know each other in that capacity, generally yeah. speaking, yeah. Um, you know, you're, you got to play the part that's in front of you as good as you possibly can and yeah. have that fit into the overall context of what what is going on. When you are the front man or the entertainer, you are what's going on, and you have you you know to a degree you rely on those uh, those musicians behind you who are uh, who are your side men, Uh, and uh, you know you have to make sure that that goes that goes well. Uh, But yeah, it's a whole different set of concerns when you are when you are in the spotlight and you're doing that. And I think that's something that it's good for any side man to step into the spotlight uh, and, and and be the front man. Uh, so they can understand first of all how different that role is. Yeah, yeah. How difficult it is, uh-huh. and how there, when you are a side man, there is a much greater picture going on than you conceive of in your own head when you are just sitting in your chair, uh-huh. focusing on your part that you've got to play.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's a interesting thought about that. I want to interject <laughs> something here to uh, just kind of add some clarity to what we're doing. Um, as in previous episodes, episodes plural. I'm pretending it's plural. <laughs> is so, uh, uh, you know, we had two baby boomers talking. Now, I am still a baby boomer; that hasn't changed. But you're not exactly you're not a millennial. Uh, no, you are. You're probably 20 years in between. You know, in the gap there, you're 20 years younger than I am, but you're older than a millennial. Yeah, I'm in a weird, uh,
1: you know, I have no idea where, where the delineations lie, but I, <laughs> I, I believe I'm in a weird in-between sort of a gap yeah. where I was born in 79, okay. um, sort of at the tail end of one generation, right. and I think before another one right. sort of started. I mean, I didn't get a cell phone until I was, uh, you know, I didn't get my own cell phone until I was like 23 years <laughs> old. <being like> <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Well, I think that adds some perspective for our uh, potential listeners here. Sure. You know, for people really, because I think the... Um, I think the different generations have different points of view. I mean, when I first got into the, the business, um, I was dealing with guys who actually came in at the tail end of the big band era. Yeah, uh, you know, talking to Bill Porter and hanging out with Bill, uh, he used to hang around with Billie Holiday. And he, wow! you know, when you uh, when you're working with musicians from that era, that gave me one connection. But you're coming from a different connect there, and so I think that's why I think you know for our listeners to be aware of where we are here. Chronologically, uh, uh, can add a little insight for all. You're of that. the older generation. Exactly. <laughs> the funny thing is, I remember when I wasn't, which is really kind of bizarre. Uh, but you know, let's let's not go there. Um, what was? Uh, how did you start working? What would you? How would you say your career began?
1: Oh, it started on cruise ships. Okay. I uh, I was finishing up graduate school. Uh, I was going to Roosevelt University. I finished hey, there. Roosevelt. I'm sorry? I went to Roosevelt. Oh, I didn't realize you went <laughs> yeah. to Roosevelt. Yeah, oh, cool. The oh, cool. I did master's there, too. Oh, cool. Probably ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of years before me. <laughs> uh, at the time that I graduated from the master's program, there, from the graduate program, uh, Rob Parton was still in charge of the jazz program. Okay. And I think it was 2005. I, uh, uh, maybe 2004. Yeah, 2004. And uh, yeah, I remember sitting in his office in the springtime. And it was sort of do it. He was my advisor. We were doing one of the wrap up interviews. And uh, he's like, okay, so uh, what do you want to do after you graduate? And uh, just, well, I looked at him. I said, uh, Rob, I don't know. You're my advisor. So you tell me yeah. what. <laughs> That's yeah, why I'm right, here. I thought you right. were going to say, okay, here's what you do now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and he said, oh, it's not really how it works. You know, you got to figure out what you want to do and then do it. And so we just got to chit chatting. And I was like, oh, I have no idea what my options are. And so, you know, when you when you're that age, I don't think you do. You don't really understand what the mm-hmm. what the sort of the scene uh, looks like, and uh, you don't know where you fit in. Some people do, but I sure didn't. Uh, not at that age. And so, you went through a list of op- uh, options, and one of the things was, uh, would you, would you be interested in travel? I, you know, I, I know a guy who who does cruise ships, and he uh-huh. says they're always looking for people. Uh, so I said, cruise ships, huh? Okay. Yeah, I, I think I could actually do that. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that sounds fun, and so he immediately, right then and there, he shot an email to uh, Dave Moorhead. Uh, okay. Yeah. Who, funnily enough, player. is is my my dentist's brother in law. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Weird small world. But uh, yeah. uh so. He, yeah, Rob sent an email to Dave Moorhead saying, uh, "Hey, I got a trumpet player here. He plays. He can play lead. I'd only just started playing lead for about a semester at that time, but he's uh-huh. like, he can play lead, which you know, he's thrown me in a, you know, sink or swim situation. I guess. Uh, are there any openings for him? Within twenty four hours, I got uh, an email from the Royal Caribbean corporate offices with two different possible contracts. The wow. guy was like, "We need someone for this. We actually, it was three different ones. There were two that were like started immediately." But were six month uh, six month contracts, so I'd be gone for six months. And then another one, it didn't start till the end of the summertime, and I was just graduating, uh-huh. so I had all all summer yet. Uh, and then that contract was only eight weeks long, okay. so that's the one I went with. Uh, and then I kind of had a summer where I actually did a little a little show uh, for that summer before doing uh, cruise ships. And I did cruise ships for a while at that point mm-hmm. then.
0: Okay, now um, let's talk a little bit more about the cruise ship thing. Um, is that something that is still viable do you still go out now and then I
1: don't know I, it's it's been about four or five years since I did my last cruise ship contract okay. and okay. for a number of reasons it's just not for me anymore you okay. know I've, I've kind of traveled to pretty much everywhere cruise ships go yeah. yeah um and uh yeah and it's you know it's nice to stay at home and have pets and you know yeah. be at home with my wife and everything right right you know, not, that's
0: that is a puts a different spin on yeah it sure uh.
1: does um, but yeah, as as far as I know, like I don't, th- you know, in the past couple of years since I've done cruise ship work, I don't think the industry's changed that radically. Uh, you know, there is still a lot of options uh, out there for 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 cruise ship work. Um, and if you wanted to do it long term and save up some money, it's a great way to save up money, yeah, uh, yeah. while still playing literally every day and getting paid to play yeah. every day.
0: It's kind of interesting talking about this because I am. There are more and more guys from my generation who are actually running out and doing cruise ships now and then uh-huh. uh, because the business has gotten kind of uh, difficult around Chicago I, uh, I've mentioned in my previous uh, episode that uh, we're kind of in a cultural crisis time right yeah. now as far as um, music and art and music is concerned and um, so there are, you know, there are seasoned musicians who are going out and doing cruises now so it's I guess it's still something that can be uh, uh, a viable way of working but again if you're if you've got family, or you're looking to keep your roots down, I can see that how that might be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, now, what was interesting? We were talking earlier about the frontman thing. While I was looking at your uh, uh, website videos, um, I think we you doing a lot of that big frontman stuff. I was looking at those Harry James things, and uh, was that on a cruise? Yeah, that was on a cruise. Okay. Uh, I put together a show that I was doing for a little while. Oh um, wow! Yeah. So you assembled the show. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, did they come and ask you to do that, or did you volunteer?
1: No, I volunteered that. Uh, oh, you cool. cert- you make more money uh, being the <laughs> guest entertainer act than you do being the sideman act. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so I had done the I had done I'd been a side man for for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and kind of played a lot of shows, had a lot of opportunity to see what worked and what yeah. didn't work, and uh, what would be something that would be a little bit different from what's out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I put together a show and. And and did that's a few,
0: actually, few runs with it. That's pretty cool. I, I like. The, I, I'm I'm impressed by the the uh, uh, initiative, if you will. I well, mean, thanks. I mean, yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, okay, can you comment on what would you think uh, for for newer musicians listening to this? Uh, what do you think would be the necessarily uh, the necessary survival skills that you would say you've got to have now? Um, uh, maybe different from what. I might have thought when I was uh, a younger musician, getting started. From your perspective, if, with your students, what would you say? You gotta know this, this, and this. What would that list? Include?
1: So for for trumpet playing, particularly, I think that the basics are always are always expected. Yeah. Um, and I, I I know your your podcast with yeah. uh, with uh, Dave. You were talking about this. <laughs> Uh, he w- it was something he brought up immediately. It's like intonation, sight reading. Right, is you're expected to be able to to read. Uh, yeah, uh, again, good intonation, uh, tone, articulation, ensemble playing. Um, all those basics that they teach you from you know when you're in middle school up through when you graduate college that should be in place. Yeah, pretty much by the time you graduate college, you should have a good conception of how to play in tune, yeah. play an ensemble. Um, you know, and at least enough of a clue of different styles that you can fake it you know when yeah. you get to- thrown a gig um, you can fake it with enough confidence that uh, you know then you can see okay this is what I need to check out for yeah. the next time I get called for that gig
0: yeah yeah um, how, well, how do you feel about knowing tunes uh, that's an interesting thing that I've been seeing with newer musicians in town but um, you know you may have uh, in the previous episode I was talking to Dave Frolic, seen about this and uh, we had to learn hundreds of tunes. Mm-hmm. And if you walked in with a fake book, you were, you were potentially shunned yeah. uh, by uh, older guys. Not, not all the seasoned musicians were difficult about it, but a lot of them would cold you if you showed up with a fake book. Now, now, Dave Frogson was really interesting uh, to talk to about that. He was pretty generous. He figured, okay, if you had the courage to bring a fake book, at least you didn't want to mess up. Uh-huh. But um, uh, it was my experience, that if, if you walked in with one, they kind of look at you funny. Uh, how, you know, how things seem... Uh, from your perspective and these days along those lines?
1: Well, I will say, I will, first of all, volunteer that that's probably my primary weakness is knowing tunes. I mean, really? I, I, I've, I know a bunch of tunes, but, you know, yeah. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys who knows every tune in all 12 keys. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's only so many hours in the day to practice so many different things. And yeah. something you and Dave did talk about yeah. uh, was, you know, Being a working musician these days, you're expected to be able to play lead. You're expected to be able to play solos. You're expected to be able to, you know, do this, that, and the other. And, um, you know... I see my my sort of knowledge of tunes as being a weakness because I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of tunes. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what in a lot of situations you're expected to have. Where maybe a singer, you know, if you're performing with a singer, for example, yeah. uh, where it might be a situation where you're doing tunes off the cuff, you're just faking tunes. You know, it might be like, a, all right, guys, L O V E and E flat. One, two, I uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, you got to be able to you got to be able to hit it. You know, by the yeah. downbeat. Um, so it. I, I think knowledge of tunes, yes, is important. I think, you know, learning every single tune that's out there, I think that only really does come through experience and being on gigs where they're like, yeah, all right, guys, L-O-V-E and E-flat one, two, yeah. and then you're like... Oh no, I don't know the tune, but yeah. you got it, you know. You and then you, come up with and, yeah. In some situations, you fold, and then you go home and you you kick yourself and force <laughs> yourself to learn L O V E in every single key, uh, and then you know you you try to safeguard against that happening in the future. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, you succeed and you do the same thing, go home yeah. and with your tail between your legs because yeah. you know you tried, you you know you faked your way through it.
0: Yeah. Now, the thing uh, is, I've never really thought that about you. I've always figured that you kind of just knew a lot of tunes, so I think you are being perhaps a little humble, but I appreciate the. Uh, the candor on that um, uh, I see a lot of guys nowadays bringing out like um, uh, their fake books and things oh, on, yeah. on, a, on a mobile device
1: I even even in the short time I've been around I, I think that that has shifted I think where whereas if you yeah if you brought uh, an, I you know like a real book to a gig, yeah. like you don't bring a real big to a gig that's yeah. something a college kid yeah. uses um, but but nowadays, it really does seem a lot more common to have that iPad, yeah. where you can just access whatever tune. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the guys, you know, the, the musicians who are, uh, who really know what they're doing, they might, ha- they'll probably have an iPad, but they don't, you know, they don't need it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's. It seems like
0: the industry's changed a little bit in that regard. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the days of the. Uh, Old timers, um, you know, looking at you funny if you if you, if he had an iPad out. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of over now. People are much more um, tolerant of, of that because uh, you know if you have the iPad, I don't think you really necessarily have to have every tune memorized. But, yeah. Uh, one thought that I uh, like to kind of uh, em- embrace here is the notion of a day gig. Um, uh, I had a day gig for 25 years. Uh-huh. It wasn't something I chose to do. I worked full-time for 14 years, and then with the birth of my son, I ended up getting a day job. Um, now, this isn't about my experience. I would like to know what what your experience is about that. Do you have any sort of day gig, or have you uh, done that sort of
1: thing? I, I cobble together a handful of different things. Okay. So I teach lessons. Right. Um, that's, uh, I do that in Batavia, where I live. Okay. Uh, At the high school. um, And I teach the middle school and high school students in Batavia. There's only one high school and one middle school in in that town. Um, And I also do some brass instrument repair part-time. Okay. Okay. Uh, and those, I guess that's the, that's the extent of what I would call a day gig. Okay. Um, and then I, I pretty much play gigs yeah. and, uh, you know, do some adjudication, uh, like adjudication and things like that from it seems time like to time. like
0: you're working a lot. And that's great. That's great.
1: Uh, yeah. I got a lot of different irons in the fire and yeah. it, it, it keeps my head spinning and uh, I, I'm always doing something and I never have any free time. And I feel like if I were to ever have free time, I would have no idea what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's really cool. Um, how did you uh, did you go through any training with the uh, uh, brass instrument repair? Um, not, I wouldn't say any formal training.
1: I didn't go to like a, you know. There's there's some schools you can go to, what some technical school, music
0: or something like
1: that. Uh, yeah, there's a, like there's one up in Red Wing, Minnesota. Okay, um, but you no, know, the the place where I work, uh, I've been working there for a couple of years now. They they just do in house training there. Generally speaking, they do hire some people that have a, you know uh, have already uh, either have. Training at a, at uh, one of these technical schools, or maybe previous training from uh, some other uh, some other lo- some other uh, instrument repair place. Uh, but then you know about half the people that do the instrument repair there they are they're trained in house. So
0: we, it strikes me that the day gig scenarios you've kind of uh, engineered for yourself gives you a lot of flexibility, um, or, or a certain amount of flexibility. Yeah, luck-
1: luckily enough with that particular place where I work, we don't have set hours. That's per se, when we have to come in and be there, we have an amount of hours per week that we need to get the work done. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, I mean, that place opens at nine and closes at nine. You know, it's open nine a.m. to nine p.m. So that's there's plenty of wiggle room in there. And so that's that's a real nice scenario for somebody like me who who my schedule is all over the map between lessons uh, and gigs and whatever other weird random things happen to you know pop up in the middle of weekdays that I you know yeah have, have to commit to
0: yeah. But again, it seemed, the, the, it's, it's not like being a high school teacher where you, you've got to be there from 7 till 4 every right. day. Um, that the flexibility thing, is, that's pretty cool. I, I think that's something to be uh, considering if you're a new musician mm-hmm. looking to, for ways to kind of get through January. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, over the past 40 years, uh, music's changed in just staggering ways. Um, uh, I I've, I've, when I first started playing, uh, I, I it was always just big band, show bands, do a rehearsal and show and things of that nature. Now I find that I will occasionally even be called to play a gig where half the band is are loops. Now mm-hmm. uh, that the band leader comes out with, uh, and so you're playing along with tracks, a mm-hmm. tracking band, and I uh, I do it. I'm glad to. Deploying someone to get paid, but I find it kind of rattles my head a little bit. Yeah, here. Uh, uh, how would you des- describe the, the changes uh, in the business over the past 40 years? You've been around for a significant amount of that, um, have affected the way uh, you know, younger musicians have to survive these days?
1: Um. So, so, from my perspective, I uh, I started college. My freshman year of college was in 1997. So, I would say that that was around the time when I first began forming whatever in the world my perspective of the music business, the music industry is. So, I mean, I'd say I got a, a solid 20 or so years uh, perspective. Um, at the time when I was in undergraduate school, uh, I feel like the professors uh, that were that I was learning from at that time, they had. Uh, a sort of a view. Uh, things were changing a lot around 1997, around the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, technology, recording industry, technology was doing a lot. Uh, budgetary concerns. You know, from these are all stories I've heard a million times over yeah. from uh, guys who even just just a few years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, things were changing a lot around that time, and and when I was doing undergraduate studies, uh, the professors I was learning from they're not aware of these changes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, really? at, at, you know, no, they because I didn't, start, I didn't do undergraduate school in, in Chicago. Okay. You know, I was in, I was, I went to a smaller school uh, okay. in, in the middle of Illinois uh, where the professors there, you know, they're not, you know, they, they might uh, go to some conventions and things like that, but it's not like, it's not like here in Chicago where, you know, the professors at the, at the universities up here are people who are creating this, the, the local scene, you know, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the regional scene, you know, which contributes to the national scene. Uh, and, and there's a lot going on in Chicago that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not living in a city like Chicago, you're not aware. So what I'm trying to say is when I was in, when I was doing undergraduate studies, I was sort of learning a more of an older school perspective, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of a world that definitely doesn't exist any longer. Um, where stu- even when I was doing graduate school, uh, studio work was still a thing in the early 2000s. I remember professors talking about that and, you know, having to get in calls in the morning to, to, yeah. to go to the studio and having to be you know, having to be ready to go that. for that. Yeah, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> but as I said, I jumped on cruise ships right out, right out of the gate uh, from graduate school. And so there was a solid few years where I was completely away from Chicago and anything that was going on here. Yeah. And by the time I got back and really started to try my hand at working in Chicago around 2008, you know I would say definitely whatever was left of the old school music industry wasn't there anymore. Yeah. Studio orchestras, yeah. uh, uh, jingle work, um, Go on. Yeah, yeah, just entire industries that, that used to exist for musicians just not there anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay, it's a, it's, it's an interesting challenge. You keep busy. Uh, and in spite of the fact that th- things like that are gone, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, how do you develop that work? I mean, it, to the extent that you feel you can share, uh, no, sure, away, I don't want. I want you to give away trade secrets. No, or no, something.
1: I, no, I don't mind because you know it, it 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 takes a lot of hard work and it takes uh, you know uh, you have to have dedication and uh, anybody who's willing to put in that amount of dedication kind of deserves to have a, a niche carved out for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it is just developing uh, developing your network of, of, of musicians in your community, yeah. Uh, that you know, increasing that network and proving to the people within that network that you are uh, an ingredient that they will want to have in whatever they're cooking up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that all goes back to what we talked about earlier the having the basics yeah. down, right. intonation, ensemble playing, all that sort of stuff. Um, and something that Dave Frawickstein mentioned in your last podcast uh-huh. too, you know, being, uh, being agreeable when you're yeah, on the gig. Right, right. Um, you know, it's, it's, you get, you get a surprising amount of gigs by showing up on time with all the right mutes <laughs> and, you know, not complaining about the charts that you're hired to play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, or if you do complain, just kind of keep it in the trumpet section. Right, yeah, you know
1: yeah. yeah. Or, or just, you know, make it look like you're trying to
0: make a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild, that's wild. This show is called Duets from the Trenches, and here is Josh playing the first part on the Charlie Smalls duet, Strutting on Mercury. I'm playing the second part. This is a real nice, fun, lilting, uh, little swing number. the interview you're doing a CD right now right yeah that's right Uh, I recorded
1: an album yeah I recorded an album last month uh, just over a month ago Uh, we had one weekend basically where we did a rehearsal on Saturday uh, and then the following Sunday the very next day we went into the recording studio uh, for about eight hours about eight hours and we we cut an album Uh, it was a it was pretty rigorous uh, that was a big band big band yeah full big band all completely original material. Uh, that's great. Yeah, so I wrote everything. Um, uh, yeah, original like I said, original compositions, my own. So no, no uh, arrangements,
0: just my own stuff. Wow, that's great. That's great. Now I did. I must confess, I've seen some of the posts on Facebook of what you were up to. And one of the things that I was impressed with in looking at the personnel of your band was it seemed pretty diverse. Uh, I I didn't see a lot of pictures. But I was impressed with the diversity uh, by virtue of, how shall we put this, chronology. <laughs> something that I've become somewhat sensitive to and never thought I'd ever get to the point where that I'd be looking at that as, an, as a potential issue. But I was impressed by the fact that you had a mixture of seasoned musicians and mm-hmm. younger musicians. Um, what's your outlook on that?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, oh, you can't beat the decades of experience that, okay. you know... Um, so the guys I had in my trumpet section, for example, I played trumpet uh, yeah. and I split split lead with Roger Ingram. Oh, yeah. Um, and then Art Davis and Doug Sharf were also in the trumpet okay. section. Well, so, yeah, those guys are all more, uh, you know, close, closer to your generation right, than, to, right. than to my own. Um, but, you know, in putting together the personnel for this album, it all had to make sense. You know, I had to be a good band that, that would work well right. together for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, uh, yeah. as, you know, you're. In the middle of you getting your own thing started as right, well, right. Um, but yeah, that ex- that experience that players like that have uh-huh. uh, playing that kind of music, playing big band music, original, right. interpreting original big band music, uh-huh. and not just that, but in a recording studio setting, yeah, uh, that's so invaluable, and that's something that uh, younger musicians can can really learn from, yeah. Yeah. watching those musicians work okay. um i, I re- there's no substitute for watching somebody work and watching okay. them play uh and and so it was a real pleasure on one hand to to watch those guys work you know to watch them yeah. just to observe them in the studio and to not only not only that but to hear the playbacks of, of their their work mm-hmm. and and just be completely blown away by it um, you know that was great enough, but to actually then play with them yeah. and and uh, fit into that in in a way uh, that. What you just learn so much from that. Oh yeah, yeah I mean, they bring yeah. so much to the table having that that experience that you can't you can't
0: simulate that. That's, I think that's. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's very cool. Now, uh, did you have the whole band in there at the same time, or did you overdub?
1: Yeah, no, we did. We did uh, basically no overdubs. Okay. There was one part where we had to overdub some woodwind stuff, but that's because we we didn't have time to set up the microphones to right. to do that. But but it was important to me to capture a performance. Okay. Not cobbled together my compositions, although okay. they were my compositions, and most of them I had never even heard played up wow. until we began rehearsals for them. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it was important to me to have a band performing the this this music, wow. and have that be what Very we cool. recorded. So all of the solos were done in real time in the studio, no overdubs on that at all. Oh wow! Uh, okay, yeah, it was it was a it was a hell of a, a you know. a a task that that i assigned to us all to do but we managed to we actually finished almost an hour early Um, that's impressive yeah (laughs)
0: good good for the budget too
1: yeah Um. good for the budget but we you know uh it speaks volumes about the level of the musicianship that was in that room yeah
0: now um the improvised solos and things of that nature were you playing some of the solos
1: i did one yeah okay um Doug and Art, Doug Sharp and Art Davis, they they handled you know the lion's share of the songs okay. as they should. Yeah, well, um. <laughs> you know, they're, they're brilliant
0: players. Uh, anybody who knows the Chicago scene would yeah, tell you that. Absolutely. So, um, but I'm just you know kind of curious because you're the you're the composer, you're the producer, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and performing. Uh, that's a that's a lot to carry. Yeah. So, uh, you know, putting down your own track, too, at the same time, that's a challenge.
1: Yeah, as we had discussed, you know, in in working with your own project, you're learning this yourself that, you know, when you are producing everything, when you're the one who's putting everything together and making everything run and you're in charge, you know, that doesn't leave a lot of time to take care of your chops, you know, to to maybe even eat like you should, to have the, the energy, to keep up the energy. Uh, even little stuff like drinking water, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it just all the all the little things that as as a sideman we are very conscious of. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's very far down the list of priorities when you're in charge. Yeah. Um. So, for my part, you know, that's that's pretty much why I had Roger Ingram there. Okay. Uh, not that I, you know, not that I would have, you know, had any reason not to have had him there. Otherwise, yeah. you know, I've been a huge fan of his playing for since oh, long yeah. before he moved to Chicago. Even. Um, the fact that he's on my album is, is uh, you know, it's a real treat for me. Uh, but, yeah, it helps to be a, to, to be at peace with relinquishing a little bit of control mm-hmm. uh, in a situation that I'm putting together and basically want to have total
0: control over it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting challenges there. Yeah. Okay, kind of moving into uh, another train of thought here. Um the music business and the sense of camaraderie we kind of touched on that a little bit here uh, competition and camaraderie uh, in, in the music scene uh, how do you see that as something that um, works together conceptually these days um, there was a time when uh, uh, there was a, uh, a tendency to really um Guard your gate, you know, and be kind of, uh, you know, kind of wary of a newcomer. I remember walking in the recording sessions when I was new in town, and people look at me, "Who's this guy?" Mm -hmm. And uh, oh no, we don't, we don't don't, want to have to deal with this. And so, uh, sort of, a stranger in town. Yeah. Um, I think that has changed, but I just wonder, from your point of view, particularly someone who's kind of in between. The millennials and me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do you see that as a uh, two ideas that work together? Competition versus camaraderie.
1: No, yeah, that's a great question. And I think you know, first first of all, competition is a real thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's an industry where we work, and everybody wants to have yeah. as good of jobs as they can possibly get with yeah. you know, given their skill set and what they do. Uh-huh. Um, at the same time, yeah, I, I agree with you that it's a very friendly-spirited competition, generally speaking, yeah. uh, in Chicago. And that's something that from the get-go I've always appreciated about. Yeah. And, and, you know, and getting back to talking about older generations, I feel that when I first started doing work in Chicago, uh, older generations of musicians reached down you know, to lend me a hand. Yeah. And I feel that being included in that way Gave me the idea that I should also include as many people as possible, yeah. and I think that's an infectious idea. I think that's a great that's a great concept, you know, of uh-huh. of uh, being accepting of of different musicians rather than wanting to keep people out. Uh, obviously, again, we all want we all want the best paying gigs that give the most glory and and <laughs> play, and play the yeah. most, you know, uh, mind blowing artistic music, but uh, you know there are plenty of, there's plenty of work out there yeah, yeah. Uh, there are also plenty of musicians out there i believe in in the competition i think competition is a very good thing mm-hmm. uh, you know as much as it pains me to say it i, I do believe in, in a fun, in a fundamental a, a fundamental level in capitalism okay. in a capitalistic spirit of yeah. having that competition uh-huh. be what drives you towards excellence okay and if you if you know that there are other musicians other trumpet players out there okay uh, in the woodshed hitting the stuff that you should also be hitting it's yeah you know it's going to make that that musician better and he's, it's going to make him so he's from a business end your competition mm-hmm. but more than just that or she it, it's going to make it so that you are going to know that when you get to the gig if mm-hmm. you know these days if you're lucky enough there's another trumpet player two or yeah. three on the gig yeah. that if those trumpet players are on top of their game, if they're hitting the shed and they're mm-hmm. practicing what they need to practice, you're going to be the odd man out if you show up and you're cacking all the notes all over the place and right. you're messing up the rhythms and mm-hmm. you're playing out of tune yeah. or your chops can't last until the last note. Mm-hmm. Um, that that more than anything is is a is a great driver to just get better and not settle, you know. Um, and even when you get when you get to a point where fine everybody's going to play great, it's going to be. Great, you know, you know you know everybody's gonna meet that minimum, but okay at that point then you wanna impress every you want to impress the people standing next (laughs) to you. Because if you can impress that crowd, (laughs) then you're doing a good job. Yeah. And that sort of competition that's that's a great kind of competition. It's very healthy, and if that's the way you approach, for me, if that's the way that I feel like if I approach uh, competition, mm-hmm. then that causes me to grow as a musician. Okay. It, it causes me to grow into that comp- that level of competition, which in a city like Chicago is is it's very uh, stiff competition. Yeah. Um, and then there's going to be a place for you. You know, if okay. if you if there's going to be a place for you on the scene.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I like that. Positive outlook on competition and camaraderie. It it's sucks good. sometimes too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, when there's there's a gig or something that that you you want to get or you yeah. know it's something's consistently going to somebody else and you're yeah. just like, oh, you know, come on, you know. But but um, you know, again, it's just it's all a driver to to get better at what you're doing and and try to examine. Okay, how am I approaching this? Is there a different way I can you know different way I can look at it uh, that might be bring better results? You know, it's a Having a career like that's a fun hobby, also.
0: Josh, get let's get back to cruise ships because um, uh, one of the concluding thoughts here is what we're going to talk about, uh, suggests for newer musicians Mm -hmm. to consider as a way of surviving. Sure. Yeah. Great. So uh, you had some more ideas about cruise ships.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were talking. Pardon me. We were talking uh, off mic a little while ago about uh, the cruise industry and how most musicians that you and I know. pretty much no matter what the age uh they've got a relatively negative view of cruise ship work and and what's available uh in terms of cruise sh- you know what's available for musicians for cruise ship work you know most most musicians they do a contract or two on, on a budget cruise line like princess or royal caribbean or something and you know uh, those cruise lines don't pay a ton. Yeah. And, you know, this type of music that's performed on those cruise lines is is less than satisfying, I think a lot of people would say. Um, and so, yeah, so a lot of musicians, they they do that in their early 20s and they, mm-hmm. they you know, they party and they blow all their money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the thing is, there's a lot of other options out there for cruise ship work that musicians don't realize uh-huh. if that's the way you approach it. Yeah. First of all, there are many other cruise lines out there other than the budget cruise lines like Royal Caribbean and Princess, and, uh-huh. which are usually cruise lines where musicians start working. Okay, Those those cruise lines, they don't pay as well as other cruise lines that are out there. There, mm-hmm. there are some out there that you can make a, a pretty respectable monthly wage mm-hmm. off of, uh, particularly when you take into account that if you're generally working on cruise ships, uh, if, even if you do it for a few years, you probably don't have to pay rent somewhere. So you can... Yeah. You know, your your amount of bills that you've got to pay monthly are pretty minimal and you can stash a lot of money away if you're yeah, careful about it. Yeah. You, you can blow a lot of money, too. Yeah. Um, but it's it is possible to, uh, you know, a typical cruise ship experiences. You, you work about three hours a day. You know, you do a, okay. a afternoon rehearsal for about an hour and then two one hour shows later on that evening. Yeah. So that's a lot of free time that if you uh, if you have it in mind to be productive, you mm-hmm. can be productive. And you can save up a lot of money.
0: Can you practice on these things?
1: Yeah, you can practice. Okay. Uh, you know, it's it's you know they don't exactly have practice rooms set up, but there's yeah. usually some backstage area or some stairwell or something like that that you can usually practice most hours of the day.
0: Oh wow, that's, yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, so somebody who's dedicated can really improve themselves uh, and and save up some cash on cruise ships. So yeah, so I just want to kind of get that out there because uh, you know. Um, Once you start to get into some of the cruise lines that are a little bit higher rated and, you know, maybe pay a little bit more, the level of musicianship starts to go up as well. So it starts to become a lot more of a tolerable and even fun environment to work and play. Uh, And and yeah, the pay is even a little bit better as well. So I think for any musician, particularly who's coming out of college, who, who doesn't know exactly what they want to do. Uh, if you approach cruise ship work is not you know like a, like not necessarily like a summer job before mm-hmm. you figure out what you want to do, but yeah. more like okay I'm gonna do this for a little while and save up some cash. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, it's for a competent musician, it's pretty easy to become a musical director pretty quickly. Wow. Those gigs pay a little bit more. Yeah. Um. You know, and uh, lead to better opportunities there as well. So those, yeah, I would say cruise cruise ship work is definitely a realistic opportunity.
0: For somebody who's looking into this, how would they go about finding something like that? Finding the work.
1: Oh, you know, uh, well, first of all, if if you know somebody who does it, Uh that's the best way because they've got the they've got the contact information for whoever's doing the hiring, uh, for whatever particular cruise line that is. Um, But other than that, if if you're just you know if you're just if you're listening to this and and you don't know anybody you know uh, if anybody's listening to this who doesn't know any contacts in the cruise ship industry, most. Cruise lines like Royal Caribbean and Princess, I believe they have on their websites where you can, you know, if you're looking for work, okay. you can, you know, just follow all the links and, and threads and stuff on there. Uh, and and basically, you know, cast a wide net. Something will come along relatively quickly. OK. Uh, again, if you cast a wide net. Yeah. Because uh, they're always looking for people. Uh, even, you know, the cruise industry, uh, as far as I know, is still, you know, a growing industry. And, and, you know, with growing budgets, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're hiring more musicians yeah. and paying more, but, you know, but the work is there. And, yeah. and there's yeah. always going to be some opportunities there.
0: Okay, concluding question. Uh, we want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams. How would you advise them uh, during this day and age to, uh, or, or would you encourage them to become musicians at all?
1: Um. <clears throat> I would if they really want to do it. Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of uh, particularly college age students. Let's say, yeah, uh, you know, like myself, my example when I when I was graduating high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, I just you know happened to pick trumpet because I enjoyed doing that. And it yeah. really wasn't until a few years later when I was like, oh, I actually this this could be something I want to do. Um, It's it's real easy for high school kids, I think, to get the impression that if you want to do something for a living, you just go to college, and then when you graduate, you get a degree in that, and then when you graduate, they hand you a diploma and they show you where all these jobs are. Yeah, yeah. Um, But for music, at least, that is certainly not the way it works. Um, You've really got to forge your own way, and if you, you know, you have you have two options basically when you're coming out of school, out of uh, music school. Either to have a very clear-cut idea of what you want to do and spend the rest of your career focusing on that yeah. and making that your thing uh, or being completely open to whatever career paths might be presented to you and just sort of chasing chasing your dreams in that way. Yeah. Uh, and if that's the way you decide to go, then you have to have as diverse a skill set as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I'm that's and that's it's advice that's always thrown out there, but it's so important to just um be able to play whatever's put in front of you, but also have some at least rudimentary writing skills. Um, these days, having some recording technology, basic understanding of that kind of stuff, okay. uh, that's important. Um, being able to teach lessons that's that's also important uh, if you if you don't want to get a, a day gig uh, you know that teaching lessons will definitely uh, provide some income as right. well as something to do in a way to get your name out there and reach younger players uh, yeah I mean just having having as diverse a skill set as possible will enable uh, young musicians to navigate because the, the reality is that whatever Whatever my view of the music industry is now, it's not going to be that way in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the changes might be subtle, they might be drastic, but um, any younger player uh, has to be prepared for whatever changes are going to come along. And, be, and having as diverse a skill set as possible is really the best way to be prepared for those kind of changes.
0: Yeah. One thing that's kind of hitting me here as we're winding this down, I like the fact that you said earlier that there is work out there. Uh-huh. It, it, it is out there. I find that a very positive thought that I kind of want to uh, kind of dial this down with because um, uh, it can be it can be a challenge, but there is the possibilities are there, and I see people um, developing this stuff in much of the ways in many of the ways that you've actually kind of touched on. Josh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I think it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you. Nick. I really appreciate it. And I want to just throw this one in there. I was so imp- it's, it's interesting. People listen, go and they poke around the internet and they find people they know. And oh yeah, sure that's Josh. And when I actually dug deeper into your web page, I was just totally blown away. Thanks, I very mean much I've been for sitting next that. to you on big bands around town as side man, a side man, But uh, to see your work as a uh, front man, as a as a leader, and then listening to your compositions and things. Um, very impressive, Josh. Thank you very I, much, I Nick. Can't. So, folks, www.joshujurnmusic.com. That's right, joshujurnmusic.com. <laughs> so, Josh, thanks, Nick. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure was out. all nice. mine. This was a blast. All right. I want to thank Joshua Jern for sharing his musical experiences with us today. If you are a younger, aspiring professional musician out there, I hope you picked up some ideas to work with. As a professional trumpeter myself, I can honestly say that Josh is a multifaceted player. He can play lead jazz and even legit. He sings and he really does a great show, uh, particularly when it comes to imitating the styles of Harry James and more traditional jazz players. He's an excellent reader and knows enough tunes to get by in any gig. If you want to find out even more about Josh Stern, please visit his website www.joshuajurnmusic.com. That's www.joshuajurnmusic.com. Please save this podcast link and check back periodically. I want to have a new show up and running every few weeks. As always, the guests will be part of a multi-generational and diverse community uh, of musicians from the Chicago area and northern and central Wisconsin. It is important to get a broad mix of ideas about musical survival as we ponder all of this. Thanks again for listening. This is the studio man, Nick Drawshoff, saying, keep making music. Peace.